0: Last week, we continued our series, Waiting for the Arrival, and we considered the King's birth. And this week, we're going to further examine the birth of Christ, but we're going to see so much more than just a manger scene. The birth of Christ reveals our proper response to Christ. And what is that? The proper response to Christ is truly worship. In order to do that well, I'd like to just have a short word of prayer that the Lord would help us during this time. Lord, our hearts, our minds are prone to wander, and so I pray that you would help us be fixed upon your word, that we would realize our gathering is not just some sort of routine or ritual, but we are here to rightly respond to you. We celebrate today only because of Christ, and so may we rehearse that in our mind, not only today, but each and every day. And as a result of that, help us to worship you well, not only now by just listening and heeding your word, but then actually walking away and living it out beyond here. Help us become good image bearers and everyday worshipers of you and all that we say and do. We cannot do this apart from you, so we ask your help even now. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I want to ask you a question. What are you giving God for Christmas? kind of a weird question but I want to suggest this giving God a life of worship for he indeed is worthy the title of today's message is this showing or more than a manger Jesus worthy of our worship Jesus worthy of our worship and, and if we're going to say that we should probably before we dive into the text define what is worship And so you're going to see it on the screen there. Worship is really showing proper value to an object or person. Showing proper value to an object or a person. It's what you give your affection and your time to. You see, worship is the response. It's our response to that which we hold in high regard, to that which we value, that object or that person. And so what is worship? Well, to worship is to show an assigned worth worship is to show an assigned worth someone has once said worship is really worth ship it's what we show worth and value and give our time and attention to you see do you know that you can actually go to church and not worship God and you can actually go to work and worship God you say how does that happen how does that work well, you can sing songs about God in church, but your heart can be far from God. And yet you can go to work and please God in your attitude and your actions and your affections, how you respond to others. Because I, I love God, I'm supposed to love others, and as a result of loving others, I'm worshiping God. Do you see that, that God has called you and me to be worshipers? Worshipers of something, Lots of people have lots of different ideas about what worship is, but worship is more than a t-shirt that says worship. Worship is more than a few songs on Sunday. Worship is more than uh, minimal moments here and there with God. You see, worship is not occasional, but really worship is ongoing. It's continuous. Worship should be the, the outflow and overflow of our life in all that we say and all that we do. You see, worship is not something that we we merely do, but it's who we are. You see, we are all created to be worshipers. Revelation 4 says this. Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. That's talking about worship. Because you have created all things, and by your will, they exist, and we were created. God the Creator is saying, hey, I created you for one thing, and it's to worship. It's to worship me. It's to worship me. You see, if we're all created to worship, then worship um, is what we're supposed to do. I read a quote this week. It says, you cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. So the real question is that we need to consider is not, will we worship, but who or what will we worship? What will we give our time, attention, our affections to? Oftentimes, we we, we might have one of these things that we could worship, ease and comfort. Who doesn't want that? Maybe the indulgences or pleasures of life, everyone can enjoy that. Entertainment or experiences, we we all can want that, but that's not the be-all, end-all. That's not what we should be living for. Maybe it's prestige or the praise of man. Maybe it's for relationships or riches. Maybe it's for food or fitness. There's, there's all these different categories. Maybe uh, you're looking for parenting or, or problem solving, and so you live to, to be a good parent or you live to, to solve all the problems. But in all reality, here's what we need to be doing. We need to be living for or worshiping to Christ and his calling upon our life. You see, that's number one. And when it's number one, all those other things can tend to fall into place. Because if you're living and loving Christ and worshiping him as you ought to, that's actually going to have an impact and an overflow to how you interact with people at work. That's going to actually have an impact on how you talk and treat your kids. Because if you're you're mimicking Christ and you're worshiping Him well, then you're gonna have love and tenderness and gentleness and patience. These are all outflows of a life of worship. If you do not have a life of worship to Christ, you know what's usually coming out of your life and your heart and your mouth? Not so good fruit right? And so we need to be considering, Lord, Lord, am I worshiping you or am I worshiping all these other categories that we can so easily be affected by? And so I'm going to ask you a few questions rhetorical. What in your life are you giving your affections to? What do you give worth and value to? What is consuming your heart and mind that affect how you live? Who is the object of your affection? You see, the answer to these questions reveal to whom or what you worship. The big idea for this, uh, this message is this. God's gift to us is his son, and our gift to God is our worship to his son. God's gift to us is his son. Our gift to God is our worship to his son. Since we all worship something, we must also seek to worship Christ in all that we do. You know, as we continue in the series in Matthew, we're going to continue to see the crowning of this King Jesus. We've already seen the royal line and the right to the throne based on Matthew chapter one. But today we're going to see the powerful kingmakers of Persia recognizing Jesus as king. And so they're going to travel, they're going to honor, and they're going to worship him. And one of the ways they're going to worship him is presenting these precious gifts to him. So having said that, a familiar story, but let's look and listen well. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, the days, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born King of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him, So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them, Where is the Messiah would be born? In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them, The exact time the star appeared, and he said to them in Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to him so that I can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came to a stop above the place where the Christ child was. When they saw the star... They were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route." we're going to really see here that Matthew isn't looking to showcase the wise men. He's actually looking to show their worship. And so in verses 1 and 2, we're going to look at the wonder of the kingmaker, of the Magi. You see, Jesus was already born in Bethlehem, as prophesied by this time, and God, it's God that would make that known to the Magi. And so several months had passed since the end of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 2. The family was now in their home, as we just saw. The time of circumcision, purification, and the offering of the Lord had already taken place. One of the reasons why we know this and get this timetable, if you were to look in Luke chapter 2, you see that they offer up these turtle doves, these pigeons, which were for the lowest possible price of these offerings to the Lord. If they would have received these gifts already, they would have bought a typical lamb. That's what would have been the practice. And so here we were going to see this, this timetable that's going to be elapsing here. But what's interesting is, as they couldn't buy and purchase this lamb, did Mary and Joseph know that they actually beheld and were holding the lamb of God who would soon take away the sins of the world? This setting of Bethlehem is roughly six miles south of Jerusalem. And what's another six miles, right? I mean, because they've already traveled roughly around 900 miles from the far eastern land. So by the time they saw the star and actually arrived to this point, 900 miles. In the Old Testament, When we see uh, Bethlehem, we see that it's called Ephrath. After the conquest of Canaan, it became Bethlehem where we see Ruth and Boaz meeting and where David would eventually be the grandchild of them living in and around Bethlehem. This is where he would raise his sheep and tend to the sheep, maybe where even Psalm 23 was written. This is the region that we're talking about In Luke chapter two, you'll see that it's called the city of David as well. Well, we understand why. You probably also know this about Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread, which will also be interesting in the fact that Jesus would one day say that I am the bread of life. We're seeing all of these things, these beautiful pictures of who Christ is right here in these early verses. But as we press on into this, we're gonna see a couple different characters. You're gonna see Herod, you're gonna see Magi, and you're gonna see the Messiah. And so here in verses one and two, we're gonna see the wonder of the kingmakers, the Magi. But let's look at Herod and consider Herod first. So Herod is called Herod the Great, and we're only gonna get to tip of the iceberg today, more to come next week. But Herod is really not so great. He's actually pretty mean, pretty cruel pretty corrupt, pretty wicked. And so when someone comes parading into town and saying, where is he born king of the Jews? This would not sit well with him because he was appointed this position by, by Julius Caesar and later by Octavian given the title and position as his power grew, so did his power hungry head and his prestige and he wanted a position. And so he oftentimes went by king of the Jews, because the region in which he was ruling over was the Jews. He was not Jewish by nature, but he did marry a Jew. And so for the Jews, like, that's good enough. But Jewish heritage was not in his black background, in his blood. He, he was not a rightful heir to be called king of the Jews as Jesus is. And so when he comes into town, uh, when these wise men come into town caravanning with this large group and he says, where is he born king of the Jews? That's not going to go over so well because Herod does not want anyone or anything threatening his power, his position, his throne. I'm king and there's no other king. We'll get more into that next week. Well, I want us to consider the Magi from the East for just a moment. Lots of myths, lots of traditions, lots of things surrounding the Magi or wise men. We're not told their names, their number, how they traveled, all these things. We, we see the flannel graph stories, we, we sing the songs, but oftentimes it's a misrepresentation. These were powerful, political, priest-like figures. They, they were really important people. And when they traveled, they didn't travel alone. They were to bid a big entourage, probably even a military army protecting them along the way. So when they stroll into Jerusalem, it's not just three possible guys riding in on a donkey or camel. It, it makes big news. And this is well known. The Magi became skilled in astronomy and many other studies. And they had sacrificial systems resembled to the one that... Israel had received from God because of their knowledge of science, agriculture, math, history, religion, all of these things, their political influence grew and grew and grew and they become very prominent, very powerful individuals and advisors to the Medial Persians and the Babylonian Empire. Historians inform us that no hear this, no Persian was ever able to become king without mastering the disciples disciplines and teachings of the magi. So when we say magi being king makers, that was their job. If someone wanted to be king in that region, they had to be under the preaching, teaching, philosophies, all these things of the magi. These were not just three philosophers sitting around. No, 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 no. Many, many, many wise individuals that had a knowledge about many, many things. But here's what's interesting. In the book of Daniel, we learn that the Magi were the highest-ranking officials in Babylon. And so when we learn that Daniel was able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, you know who wasn't able to interpret the dream? The Magi, the wise men. And their heads would be on the chopping block. Nebuchadnezzar wanted answers. And here's what we know. Daniel 2.48 says this, when Daniel was appointed, he was appointed as ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief perfect over all the wise men of Babylon. It was Daniel who then pleaded for the lives of the wise men who failed to interpret the dream. Daniel became highly regarded among the magi. And so because of Daniel's influence and impact, these magi were spared only because of Daniel don't you think these Magi might have something to learn of from Daniel? Couldn't it be very possible that Daniel actually proclaims about the the rising, the coming of a future king? Like these are really wise people that that want to be well-versed in all things. And so here we see wise men in the east under the Magi with Daniel who are saved, who are spared at the hand of God, allowing Daniel to interpret a dream and the Magi being blinded. And now in this story, we're going to see where everyone else is blinded and the Magi have their eyes open to see what no one else sees. What a turn of event that we're going to see here. So it shouldn't surprise us when we learn here about these Magi who are typically pagan in nature. Not Jewish, not in in regard of that, but here's what we learn when the time of exile is over many of the Jewish people actually stay east and intermarry. And so even though a lot of uh, the Jews had returned to this Jerusalem area, you know, this, this group, many would have stayed there. And so the, the, the times and the teachings of the Messiah to the Magi still could have grown. They still could be learning of and looking for and seeking this Messiah, even though they were in a land far away from Jerusalem. So... Having said that, we see these well-educated Magi's who are God-fearing Gentiles looking for a Messiah, looking for a king. Limited knowledge, but they've been influenced somewhere along the way. And so when they arrive, they ask, where is he, the Messiah, who has been born king of the Jews? This is actually a present participle, which basically, in the English, is saying, they came into town, and they were asking, where is he, where is he? And apparently no one knew, so they go to Herod, as if it was an ongoing action, as if it was an ongoing asking. No one apparently knew what was going on. And so we see this conversation between them and Herod. Herod is clueless. He invites who? The chief scribes, the really important religious people that know these things. But apparently they missed it as well because they weren't looking for a Messiah. They weren't looking for a king. They weren't looking for a shepherd. They were were looking to, to rule themselves. And so although they knew the scriptures, they were able to, to quote Micah 5.2. They were able to point, oh yeah, this, this, this Messiah, this coming king, he would be born in Bethlehem. But they didn't see it. And when they heard of the news, they didn't go to, to follow. So we see these true worshipers and the wise men and the magi, Gentiles. And then we see king of the Jews, Herod. And we see these other religious leaders that hear of the news. And they're not really that interested. They're kind of like, oh, good for you. We're so happy that you saw this star in the sky. And will you go find him? And when you find him, will you just let us know so we could come worship him as well? Which we know their their intent, their their background is not good. But why wouldn't even the religious people go and say, he's born, you saw this, why wouldn't they follow? Because they didn't want to follow. And we'll see that throughout the life of Christ, that they didn't want to follow. But once again, the Lord had given them a sign, apparently, that's seen by them, but not by all. And there's this wonder. It says there that they saw a star in the east. But you know what? They didn't follow the star from the east to Bethlehem. They saw the star when they were in the east, but it doesn't say that it led them there because remember, when they get there, they're still looking. They're unaware of where this is at. The star is going to reappear in verse 9, right? So we know that it was there for a moment. Could it be? Could it be that when the shepherds saw it on the, the night of Christ's birth, that this, this star, this radiant light appears, and it's the shepherds who see it, and it's the wise men, the magi 900 years away, that they're made aware of this same thing at this night, and they know this is it, this is the sign, this is the coming Messiah. Let's pack our bags and let's start our journey back to the land of all of Jerusalem. Let's go there. Let's go. Let's see. Let's find It wasn't guiding them the whole way. You know, the Bible doesn't really say or identify much or explain much about the star. But I want you guys to think about this. Could not have been the glory of God. The same glory that's shown not only to the shepherds, but throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, God's glory is made known as a light radiating his presence. So when Jesus arrives, Emmanuel, God with us, it shouldn't surprise us that this beam of light would just be radiating the sky. You know, the Lord guided Israel through the wilderness, a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, this this bright, radiant light. When Moses goes to Mount Sinai, he appears the glory of the Lord as a consuming fire. When Moses receives the Ten Commandments, he says he comes back down and his face is glowing because he has seen the glory of God radiating. When Jesus is transfigured at the Mount of Transfiguration, what happens once again, there's this bright white shining from his face, and his garments are as white as snow. On the road to Damascus, when Paul has this encounter, what is it? it's this glory of God, this bright light, and in fact, later in the book of Acts says, "Brighter than the sun." And then you turn to the book of Revelation and John. Describes Christ like the sun shining in its strength. And Revelation 21 says this concerning heaven. The heavenly dwelling for believers has no need for the sun or moon. For the glory of God has illuminated it. And its lamp is the light. So contemplate this. If the lamp is the lamb. Okay, let me read that again for the glory of God has illuminated it and its lamp is the lamb so if jesus is the lamb of god and he is the lamp god's glory is the light and and, and that's what's being this this picture thing, right here i mean th- think about a think about a star just for a moment if you were to, to, to do some looking and researching on how hot stars are, like we're, we're talking thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of degrees. The sun. Most stars are the sun's size, just way, 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 way further away. So when it later talks about the star sitting or dwelling right over his It couldn't have been a literal star right then because they would have all been consumed. The whole earth would have been consumed, right? But it it could have been this star, but it's also not just the star. It's the the glory of God being shown down like this just spotlight, zoom right down to the house. That's what's going on here. God is doing something wonderful, something awe-strucking, And he's revealing this not only to the Jewish shepherds, but the Gentiles from the East. Not just the religious people, but the irreligious people. Not just lowly shepherds, but wise old men in the East. See, Jesus is bringing this salvation to the young, to the old, to the religious, to the irreligious, to people from all walks of life. That's what Jesus is bringing. He's bringing this salvation to them. You know, in Numbers 24, The Messiah is spoken of as a star that shall come from Jacob. Revelation twenty-two. Jesus refers to Himself as the bright and morning star, and so the glory of God appearing as an extremely bright star is on display for the Magi. And just as the pillar of God, pillar of cloud, would guide Israel, but the darkness would remain upon Egypt. Only those who would have eyes to see would actually be seeing this. So you say, how did this this radiant light, how did not everyone see this? Well, just like the Israelites would see the light and the Egyptians would not, the same is true right here. We see God revealing to some, but not to all. This is a special meeting thing, and he is bringing the Gentiles from the east into this. And for what purpose? Why did they travel this great distance? Well, you see it right there, to worship Christ, to worship Christ. They're searching out the Lord, and they are searching, they are searching, and they will find him. They have this intent on worshiping Christ. Look at verses 3 through 8. This is where we're going to consider the wickedness of the appointed king. Our first two verses are gonna be the longest, and then the middle is gonna be shorter, and then the last one's gonna be super short, so bear with me here. We see Herod here. He's not really looking to worship. He's actually looking to ruin Christ, which we'll see next week. He actually has the exact opposite response of the Magi. Instead of rejoicing, he is troubled. He is distraught. He is angered. He is frustrated. Historians talk about him being immensely jealous paranoid and uh, all sorts of other things. And so upon hearing this, there is fear and anger that consumed him and he worships self, which is why he is filled with problems rather than worshiping God and finding actual peace. And that's what we see here. He wanted to be king rather than King Jesus. And so these king posed a real threat to him. But notice it says there, it's not just Herod that was distraught. It says all of Jerusalem with him. They knew that when this caravan came into town, that this would upset Herod, and they knew this. If Herod is not happy, then no one is happy. And there was going to be some fallout, and this would be not good for them. And rather than them seeking to trust and follow the Magi who are looking for the Messiah, they remain trembling, seeking to bow the knee to Herod rather than bow the knee to King Jesus. And so Herod inquires where they're at. They they, they find that, and then we... See that he's going to leave, these wise men are going to leave Herod. And Herod doesn't seek to follow. The religious leaders don't seek to follow because they're not real followers. They're, they're false, false worshipers. And so they are going to stay where they're at. But you know, the prophecy indicated that the Messiah, he would be a ruler who would rule and shepherd his people. What a thought! What a beautiful picture of a shepherd who loves and leads, who protects and provides. But they didn't want a shepherd to lay down his life for his sheep. They simply sought their selfish ambitions. And in time, Jesus would show himself to be the great shepherd. You see, true worshipers of Christ crown him as king. They stand in awe of him. And here we see a false king who is angered and other religious leaders who have nothing but apathy the things of God. While they can say the right things and know the right answers and pretend to be worshipers of God, their heart is far from God. But in verses 9 through 12, we see this. We see the worship of the true king, King Jesus. Actual worshipers here. They proceeded to Bethlehem after their long journey, after leaving Herod, The glory of God appeared once again. It appears once again and takes them directly to the house. And they are overwhelmed with joy, exceeding joy. That's what the Bible says. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, overwhelmed by what is taking place. They are awestruck at what is going to happen. And in just a moment, I want us to consider this. What happens when you truly worship Jesus? One of the results of worshiping Jesus, you say, why would I want to worship Jesus? One of the results of that is exceeding overwhelming joy. You see, people that do not worship Jesus, they're usually not overwhelming with joy. They're overwhelmed with life and anxiety and problems and stress and struggles. And they say, what's the point of this life? Well, the point of this life is found in Jesus. And those who worship Jesus find joy in Jesus. I'm not kidding about this. I'm not joking about this. The only happy, joyful people in this story are the Magi. Everyone else is miserable. You you look at miserable people that you know, family and friends and your neighbors, why are they miserable? Because they don't know Jesus. But listen, listen, here's the good news. You and I can experience this joy as we worship Christ well, they too can experience true joy, joy that no one else can have. This joy, is a gift from God. It doesn't mean that people that don't know Jesus can't ever experience some sort of happiness or joy. No, no, no. But listen, joy is connected to worship. So if you lack joy in your life, here's the problem. The problem is not with God is withholding joy from you. Maybe you are withholding worship to him because when you start to worship him and walk with him as you ought to, one of the results of that is going to be joy. So if you find yourself joyless, lacking joy, you might need to do a little inventory of where are you worshiping the wrong things instead of the right thing, worshiping Jesus. Because in worshiping Jesus, you're going to find great, great joy. But here's what we see. When they actually finally come to see Jesus, what happens? They, they bow down before Jesus. They fall at their feet upon Jesus why would they do this? Well, it's in humble exaltation. They fell down as a means to exalt Jesus up. This prostrate position is saying, we are not worthy. We want to elevate you. We want to worship you. We want to put you in the place that you are. Although you're just a babe, although you're just a child, you are king. and We want to crown you as such. And so in this humility, they seek to exalt. They seek to lift him up. And so as you humbly live and acknowledge Christ, you exalt and you worship Christ. When you bow down and say, I I can't, but Lord, you can. When you bow down and say, Lord, I surrender. I'm struggling here. I can't do this. I've been trying to fix this, this, and this. When you humbly come before him and say, Lord, I want you to be king and ruler of all. I want to stop trying to figure it out and fix it on myself because I'm just messing things up. When we start to actually live this way, when we humble ourselves and exalt him as king rather than us, that can be very transformative. And then you're actually starting to worship him for who he is and exalting him to the level in which he deserves. And as a result of that, you can find joy. My friends, this is something that we all so desperately need and the world so desperately needs. But not only this, we don't only see their, their prostrate and, and, and bowing down to worship him. They're going to generously give to him. But here's what we come to see. Their generosity was not an addition to their worship, but an extension of their worship. You see, the giving, it was out of an abundance of their adoration and gratitude toward God. Their gift giving was an outward expression of the inward heart of worship, You see, right giving must be motivated by right worship, not religious compulsion. These magi were wise men as they saw their giving as a means to worship God. Do do, do you see that? They're not giving to earn God's favor. They've received God's favor, and they want to give back to him. And so they're giving to him as an actual form of worship to him. Not because they they have to, but because they want to, they desire to. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on these gifts. But here's what we understand about their gifts. Their gifts were selfless, sacrificial, and they were of significant value. The gold shows the great value and worth. The construction of the temple has lots of gold in it. The frankincense is this costly but beautiful-smelling incense For special occasions, such as royal processions, weddings, the grain offering one time a year, and the myrrh was another valuable perfume. When mixed with wine, could have been used as a medicine, and when mixed with other spices, would have been for the preparation of body burial. I read in one commentary, the gold represents the royalty, the frankincense represents the deity, and the myrrh represents the humanity of Jesus. All of that may very well be true, But their mission here, oh, it was complete. They came, they saw, they worshiped. That was their mission, that was their goal, that was their desire. They became the first Gentiles gathering to worship Christ in God's divine design. He directed them from their home to the home of the Messiah, from the home of the Messiah back to their home. And God granted them and guided them every step of the way. That's who God is. Uh, We're gonna show a map right here real quick. As we close things down, You know, there's nothing further mentioned of these magi, but likely these kingmakers continued to worship God by spreading the good news in royal uh, places and and the palaces to the east, just as the good news would one day come to Caesar's palace in Philippians chapter two. We read about that, Philippians chapter one. But as I was reading, I was thinking about the Great Commission. The Great Commission to take this good news from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's the Great Commission. And what do we see here in this story? The early picture of this Great Commission, because the Magi come to Jerusalem. They declare the good news of the Messiah being born. They exit another way through Samaria up to Judea, Samaria, and then back to the east, 900 miles away to the ends of the earth. Right here, we already see these magi spreading this good news. Do you think that all the things that they saw and that they encountered, they wouldn't tell anyone? They're telling anyone and everyone they can about this Messiah. And so as we close, I want us to consider these three things, and it's things we've already talked about. Nothing new is going to be said here. True Christ worshipers do three things. They do more, but right here in the text, here's what we see. True Christ worshipers seek... They spend time in God's word. They give up their time. They're looking for God. They're searching for God. They're giving their time to God. You, fall, you see, false Christ worshippers they don't seek the things of God. They seek to fill their time with other things. And rather than identify with Christ, they have no time for the things of God or his word. They don't seek out the counsel of God. They seek approval somewhere else. They also this. They also exalt. They humbly honor him above all things. In humility, they, they show obedience They'd say, your, your way, Lord, your will, Lord, above my way, above my will. I want to humbly follow you. False Christ worshipers don't seek to exalt Christ. They're indifferent toward the things of Christ. They're, they show great apathy for the things of Christ. That's good for you, but that's not for me. I'm glad that you bow down and worship God. That's not for me. Okay. But true Christ worshipers also do this. They give sacrificially, sacrificially give. They give of themselves, of their service, their time, their treasures. You say, we we tend to value these things. But listen, if we worship Christ, we will value him and give to him what is valuable to us. You see, false Christ worshipers, they don't give to God. They could care less about giving to God and his people and the things of God. And so out of greed, out of priorities, out of self-preservation, Rather than give, they look to get and gain. True worshipers just give. They give of themselves in any way they can to the glory of God. I mean, why is it that we give presents to our kids on Christmas and not every kid on our street? Why? Because there's a certain value, a certain worth that we see in our kids that we don't see in the snotty-nosed kid down the street. If you love God, if you love Christ, you ought to give him the worth and value and recognize him as we close. Why worship Christ? If someone were to ask you, why would I want to worship Christ? Well, first of all this. First, for his glory, because he is worthy. he's the creator, sustainer, and savior to the world. But secondly, for our good. We already talked about this. When we have the right worship, we have exceeding joy. We cannot miss this. And so if you're lacking joy, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Just as the glory of God guided the wise men, God looks to guide us by the light of his word, which ultimately makes us wise and allows us to worship him well. Here's what we see. The wise men fell at the feet of Jesus and worshiped him. If we fast forward through time, Mary would be at the feet of Jesus as he dies on a cross, him being exalted, him being lifted up. And now Jesus sits at the right hand of the throne of God. says, earth is his footstool, and we are to worship him even now. This is what he calls of us. But, but, but here's the problem. Jesus was born to be worshipped, and we are born to worship him, for he's truly worthy. But here's the problem. Our sinful state, we are unworthy to truly worship him. And yet, through the gospel of Christ, we are made worthy. And so here it is. We can be made worthy as we repent of sin, call upon him to be our savior and be made worthy to worship him. It's his gift that he grants to us. You see, God was raising up then and now worshipers, not just Jews, but Gentiles, people from every corner of the earth. Just as he was doing that then, he's doing that now. And so there's no one that cannot be reached by the good news of this glorious gospel. So when you or others find themselves empty, depleted, lacking joy, point them to the joy giver found in Jesus. Point them to to worship Christ, for indeed he is worthy.